0: Hello, it's Caroline. The episode you're about to listen to was recorded a very long time ago, back when I still had a Patreon, back when I ran lots of different workshops and programs that don't exist anymore, and back before the Fuck A Diet book. So I may be referring to any of these obsolete offerings while you listen to these episodes, and though the Patreon and the other programs don't exist anymore, you can still find helpful resources by going to thefuckadiet.com more. You can also download the beginning of the book if you haven't read it yet for free from my site, thefuckadiet.com or thefuckadiet.com free. Lastly, this podcast is pretty messy. The podcast is casual and messy in a way that some people really enjoy. Some people come around to enjoying after they decide that they don't hate me. And some people just always hate the style of my podcast. So if you're irked by some of the messiness and just want slightly more structured and streamlined episodes, you can listen to the more recent episodes. I've done a little work on structuring a little better, but it's still pretty messy. Okay. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hey guys, welcome to episode six, I Think of the Fuck It Diet Radio. I am your host, Caroline Dooner, and I broke my microphone a couple days ago, so I had to order a new one and wait for it, which is one of the reasons why this episode has taken so long to get out. But today I'm interviewing someone super awesome, and her name is Christy Harrison, an amazing health at every size nutritionist who I um, connected with maybe a half of a year ago and I've been on her podcast and we did it live in New York City and she is such a great resource for people who are experiencing their own eating stuff because she is a nutritionist who believes that dieting sucks. Before I have you listen to this awesome conversation that we had, well, we think it's awesome because we had fun, I just want to remind you to subscribe on iTunes, to rate and review on iTunes because it helps so much get it out there for other people to see. It bumps it up in the in the rankings and the ratings. It helps people to find the podcast. And also, if you like this podcast and want me to be able to produce it more often if you would support the podcast as little as $1 a month on Patreon, Patreon, dot com slash Caroline Dooner, you know I would be forever grateful. And it really does help because as I'm learning, <laughs> podcasting is fun, but it's also kind of involved and it actually does cost money. Who knew? I didn't know that. But um, yes, my, my goal is to, is to get out one a week, but that is going to take some support. So any support you can give will be very appreciated. Also, I am currently enrolling a live grounding workshop. I have a free webinar at my site, thefuckadiet.com slash webinar. You can watch the nearly hour-long workshop that I that I held for free where I talk about what grounding is. And what grounding really is, is the concept of being in your body energetically. And I talk about some ways that you can really practically do that. And I do some energy work, which is my new little, you know, world that I'm kind of entering into and really finding that it's helping people where they're stuck. Because yeah, all the stuff that we've been talking about, that I've been talking about for four years, it all applies, it all helps, it's all important, but for people who are stuck where they are and really, really resistant energy work is out there as it sounds, it can be really helpful. So if you are interested in joining, after you watch the webinar to see what's up, in joining the three-week workshop. That is going to be my first group, online group, energy work group. Oh my God, why can't I say that? That is going to be my first online energy group. Yes, that's what I'm trying to say. And, um, yeah, so check that out. It'll be pretty fun. And there's some energy work. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, which if I were you, I wouldn't know what I was talking about either, so check it out in the free webinar, at slash webinar, and just, you know, you know, if it's not for you, that's great, that's just fine, but if it is, join me. That is enrolling until April 4th. All right, and without further ado, here is my little ukulele intro that kind of bothers me already. Christy, thank you so much for being here. Hi, Caroline. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled. I'm super excited. Um, I'm sure lots of people listening know you and even maybe know me through you, but I want to give you a chance to introduce
1: your work and um, a little bit about yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I am a nutrition therapist specializing in eating disorders and intuitive eating, um, and I help people kind of across the eating disordered spectrum. So whether they just have disordered eating or have been on a million diets or have a full blown eating disorder, anyone who has kind of a struggle with their relationship to food, I help them work to heal it. Um, and so that's my private practice work. And then the other half of my time, I am a journalist. So I write about food and nutrition and Eating disorder recovery. Sometimes, I have a podcast of my own called Food Psych, where I talk to people about their relationships to food, and um, yeah. And the the podcast is actually about to have its three year anniversary. So I'm so congratulations, Uh, guys! It's such a
0: good podcast. I actually don't listen too many podcasts and I don't, I especially don't listen to many, uh, food and eating disorder related podcasts, but mm-hmm. I love yours. I listen to yours all the time. Oh, thank you. You're really good. good You're really good at it. You're really good at, um, interviewing right now. I feel
1: like <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you. That's a, that's so, such a nice compliment. I don't even think of it as a skill really. And it's funny because for the three year anniversary, I'm going through the archives and like doing a little project where I'm putting together some albums that people can buy as like premium content. Oh. So all the, the first 14 episodes are only available premium, but I've been listening back to them and like, I'm like, holy crap. Like how far have I come since then? It's just, it's crazy to see right. the, the difference. Yeah, so I, mean, I think- imagine
0: it's all about just kind of like settling into it
1: Mm-hmm. And Yeah, kinda getting comfortable with the platform and with like what you want it to be. Exactly. Um, yeah. So it's it's you, cool though. I mean do you when ever it do, started as
0: oh sorry. Sorry. Do you ever do episodes where it's just you or do you always interview?
1: I always interview, um, there's sometimes where I do episodes with like a little bit of a longer intro and talk about something, you know, my own sort of topic. Um, but actually I do now some premium episodes. So I, I guess I do actually, um, have premium episodes where it's just me and I answer listener questions about eating disorders, intuitive eating, health at every size, um, right, that right, kind right. Of thing. That's a yeah. really good idea
0: actually, because I'm doing Patreon as well, mm-hmm. um, I learned about it a while ago, but I think you actually really inspired me to to, to put it with the podcast because it makes mm. so much sense. Because it does take time and effort and money to produce a podcast, yeah. Um, and it's also a really cool way to get in touch with the people who really care about the podcast and to offer them bonuses
1: and stuff. Totally, yeah. It's kind of a little exclusive community, which is cool. Yeah, Patreon's so cool. I, it's funny cause I hadn't, I'd heard about it a bunch of times too and hadn't really thought anything of it. Cause it's like small recurring monthly donations. It's little, as little as like a dollar a month. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I don't know if that's going to help me. I have bigger fish to fry. You know, right. I thought I, my sort of business model when I first started, um, well, when I first, first started, it was like advertising. And then I moved to like, um, you know, getting people to come to my nutrition therapy practice. But then that started really filling up and I didn't really have slots to promote. So then I was like, well, how am I going to, you know, support this podcast and and keep doing it? And so then I was listening to someone else's podcast who uses Patreon. I was like, oh, fine. I'll just check out this Patreon thing, dollar a month, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then I was floored at how much she was actually able to get from it and how what a like cool community it was in the patreon uh once I was like in the door of the patreons it was like yeah. all this it fun is stuff. really
0: cool it's really it's a really well made site mm-hmm. I feel like yeah, um, yeah nothing, nothing else fan. really allows you to do that so it's, it's great and I yeah I mean like $1 a month.
1: I'm so willing to support people.
0: Right. That's so manageable.
1: <laughs> I know it's less than a cup of coffee. It's like, how can you not? Oh, that's what you say. Yeah. That's really yeah. That's really good. I won't steal that, but I'll think of my own. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's for some reason. That's where my mind always goes because I have this weird, like my parents, I think instilled in me this thing of like, don't order beverages. Cause that's where they really stick you. That's the most expensive <laughs> markup on the menu. So I'll like, you know, think about it when I'm a about to go order my morning coffee. And I'm like, I should just make coffee at home. I need to save money. That's really but funny. That's it's, like, it's so silly. that's one of those beliefs that's like ingrained. We, we all have
0: them, right? <laughs> totally. Some, and some of them are horrible ones about weight and food, but, yes. um, but money's a big one, isn't it? That's another mm-hmm. thing that we develop all of our parents' weird stuff around. Oh yes.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. I think my parents are very like DIY, like have always just, you know, they like remodeled two houses by themselves. That's they, so like, cool. I want to know how really, to do that.
0: Yeah,
1: no, they're super capable. But then actually I realized as I became an adult, I was like oh, that's actually not always the best thing to do. Like sometimes outsourcing something to an expert right. is really the way to go to save yourself insanity because they were Time often and like money so sometimes. stressed. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah,
0: well, my like my family, they're like became with the, with the selling of a company, like became pretty well off and are like so guilty feeling about it and have all this like, you know, this isn't the way that the whole world lives. You need to know that. Like, and it's good because it actually did teach me that, but it's also really like, like there's no calm. There's no like just enjoy. I mean, they do enjoy it too, but there's no like, it's not necessarily a healthy relationship with, with money. It's like, there's a lot of guilt around like, well, I'm going to buy you this really expensive thing, but like you should know that this is really not like, I don't know. It's weird. It's strange. Mm -hmm. No, Um, I definitely... There's been some unlearning. (laughs) There's been some unlearning to do. Yeah. Um, Yeah, and I feel like... I feel like, personally, once I healed my own relationship with food, like that was the most present dysfunction, I would say, Mm -hmm. for me, for years. Then it was like, okay, great. Now I'm like now I'm so free to think about other things, but then it really made me come face to face with all of my other dysfunctions and all my, the other beliefs that I had and all the, you know, all the, mm-hmm. once I really moved to the food thing, then I just kind of kept like, it began my self-improvement in a, in the in a healthy way. Yeah. I guess you could consider it unhealthy too, if I'm like constantly trying to improve myself, but That's that's
1: part of it, too. (laughs) Learning to not
0: constantly try to improve yourself.
1: Oh, it's such a dance, right? Because like, yeah, there's this sort of part of you that wants to be wants to be okay and wants everything to feel better. So there's, there's definitely like motivation to keep seeking support and improvement. But then when does that tip over into its own obsession? You know, I've exactly. definitely, exactly. definitely gone through some of that myself too. And i totally empathize with that, you know, experience because I had my own eating disorder. And then, you know, as that, as I recovered from that, I just started to like open the door to all the other things that were functioning in the same in the same way as the eating disorder had, you know, like I had right. codependency codependency issues big time in my relationships. Mm-hmm. So I had to really tackle that head on. And then, you know, I have certainly a tendency to overwork, definitely a tendency to like freak out about money, which is exacerbated by the fact that I'm my own boss. Right. <laughs> so I, I could like always be looking at my books and tweaking things and, you know, right figuring out ways to save, but like, what does that really get me in the long run? You know? Yeah. So, yeah.
0: It's, yeah, it's just like, it really is that once you deal with the food thing, it's like, okay, but this wasn't just about food. This is nope. about so much more. And it's about how I operate and, mm-hmm. and what can I learn about myself through this journey?
1: And how can I heal many areas of my life? Yes. Absolutely. I know it's, it's an interesting process because I find a lot with clients too, as they like start to work out their food issues when they come to me, then like more and more it starts to become like a regular therapy session. So I'm finally like, like, you know, okay, I think you've, you've processed everything you can with the food, you know? Yeah. It's time for time time for some actual therapy. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Um, so why don't you share with us You mentioned your eating disorder. How you got into the work
1: that you are doing now? Sure. Yeah. Well, it's kind of a winding path because um, I developed the eating disorder at the end of college. I actually took like a a super senior semester, so I I I started to get you know disordered in my beginning of my senior year, and then um, through that extra semester, it was just descending and descending into worse behaviors around food and my health was getting worse. And, um, it was one of those things that never was diagnosed at the time. Doctors were always kind of like, well, you know, your weight's okay, but don't lose any more kind of thing. Like, you know, you're not skinny enough to have an eating disorder, but don't (sighs) get there, you know? And just like, so I didn't actually get help for the mental stuff and, you know, all the behaviors around food, which would really have been nice to get direct help for that at the time. But I didn't. And, um, and I I was pursuing a career in journalism. So I started an internship when I graduated college at a local newspaper and fell in love with one of my fellow interns who happened to be really into food. And Mm -hmm. so that was sort of the beginning of my like stepping a toe out of the eating disorder because at the time, you know, talk about like how issues sort of, you know, it's like food was just one of the issues. Another mm-hmm. one of my big issues was changing myself to please guys or to please people right. in general. Right, right. It's always been a huge thing. Um, so I decided that to get this guy, cause I thought he was amazing. And I was like, you know, instant crush. I was like, if he's going to date me, he can't know about all this crazy stuff I do with food. Like he would huh. not be okay for that. So I, I, I hit it. Like I hid, you know, the, the true insanity of it while I was with him. And I was like, I'm just going to suck it up and like enjoy my food or pretend to enjoy my food at least when wow. I'm with him, like go on food adventures, eat things that are, you know, different and interesting. And like, you know, then behind closed doors on my own time, I will overexercise or restrict or binge or whatever to like, you know, hang on to the eating disorder in some way. Um, Not that I, you know, intended it that clearly, but I think that's the, you know, now with retrospect, I can kind of see that's what was going on. Um, So, and then, you know, through the process of dating him, I actually did start to get more adventurous and open about food. And so then, you know, being sort of early in my journalism career and starting to develop this interest in food, I decided to specialize in journalism, in food journalism. Mm -hmm. So I made that my beat. Um, And that led to a lot of internal conflict because... I knew still what what was going on with my relationship to food was weird and that, you know, kind of the biggest sign, I I find a lot of people have this where, like, they won't necessarily realize the restriction's a problem or overexercise is a problem, but they'll know that binging is a problem and they don't want to binge, Yes. (laughs) So that was my clue. I was like, okay, something's up because I'm binging. And I was so ashamed and so embarrassed and thought, like, you know, if... My colleagues in the food world knew they would be horrified, they would judge me. So again, it was like this shame and secrecy and like people pleasing, which, you know, it's I in retrospect now, I, I think like it's it was sort of a blessing that I had that instinct, but it's also obviously really steered me wrong in a lot of other areas of my life. And once once it sort of got me through the hump of the disordered eating, then I had to actually address it and be like, okay, but also you're not helpful too. Right. So, you know, people pleasing has to go, pretending has to go, you know, right? opening up and sort of acknowledging shame had to be a part of the process. Um, but I think, yeah, so I, you know, I started my, my first career was in food journalism and then the magazine I was working for was gourmet magazine. Um, for I worked there for a couple of years, and they were there were rumblings that the magazine was going to fold or that it, there were going to be layoffs um mm-hmm. around like two thousand and nine and I was you know the web department, which was relatively new, so I kind of thought like maybe we'd be on the chopping block and um better figure this out. so I kind of started to think like what else might I want to do? Journalism was starting to seem like it was you know increasingly not a great place to work full time mm-hmm. um and so I kind of thought about my interests and the things that I had covered and, you know, came to the the thought that maybe I wanted to work in nutrition policy or maybe I wanted to work as a dietitian with people individually. And I wasn't totally sure, but I thought like either of those two paths might be uh, appealing. So I enrolled in a program at NYU for a master's of public health nutrition and a registered dietitian's license. And sort of initially the goal was to keep working at gourmet and do those classes at night but then they folded the magazine mm. um and i think going back to school was such a godsend in terms of you know really finally healing my relationship to food fully and you know sort of challenging all the um nutrition myths i had held on to or sort of secretly still believed in the back of my mind right. cuz i was i was like weight restored at the time i was not Engaging in behaviors very often, but I still was occasionally, and I still had the thoughts. Right, um, so right, I right. think you know, going back to school really helped cement like some good cognitive behavioral strategies for fighting back against the thoughts. Because I could be like, "Oh, actually, here's what the science says, and I know this is true. I'm paying for this education, like right, is, right. You know, there That's was a so lot helpful, of,
0: yeah. And you went. I mean, I've, I think I remember you saying that you you went into this be sort of because of the eating disorder, it was like another way to control, but it actually helped you get out of it. Were you the person I've listened to so many interviews? And so I can't remember whether this was you or someone you've interviewed, Mm -hmm. but one of
1: someone's first classes was with Linda Bacon. That was Glennis Oyston, who's okay, uh, okay, a fellow okay. health at every size RD. Yeah. And that right. was so amazing. Like I was like, so I cool. wish, I wish those had been my first classes. Cause that's I feel like so then it would have just been like really a light great. bulb. Yeah, so. yeah, 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 yeah.
0: That's amazing. But that's great. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that, that going through, I guess it makes sense that you were able to really look at it from a scientific perspective, but don't you think there are a lot of nutritionists who are able to go through and and keep their eating disorder you just yeah. have that awareness though
1: already I think yeah I, I think about that a lot because there are a lot of you know nutritionists who have eating disorders or disordered eating or disordered thoughts that kind of convey that to their clients and inadvertently spread an eating disordered message. And like, so I knew a number of people in school definitely who like seemed to still be struggling. Right. Um, but I guess I was just, I had been in therapy at that point for like five or seven years, I guess, mm-hmm. with the same, maybe five years with the same therapist. Um, and it had, it had taken me a while to even open up to her about the eating issues. Cause I was like, you know, felt so shamed and didn't want to touch them. Yeah. Um, but I had, I had done that before I went back to school. So I think, you know, getting some help for that in therapy maybe put me in a place of, like, more receptivity um, that, you know, if someone who was just going back to school, who didn't have that experience, maybe wouldn't have, wouldn't have registered. And I also, I, I can't remember who introduced me to this book. It might have been just like a footnote somewhere along the way in my classes, but um, I discovered the book Intuitive Eating mm-hmm. in grad school and I think that was a huge turning point as well. Yeah. So.
0: Well, that actually leads, I have all these questions I want to ask you. That is my mm-hmm. first question. My question is, how do you define intuitive eating?
1: Mm, great question. Yeah. So I define it, I guess the sort of short answer is like you know, listening to internal cues and integrating those with what's going on externally to learn how to feed yourself or to 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 take care of yourself with food. So, you know, what that means is like thinking about what you're hungry for, how hungry are you? You know, when are you hungry? Um how full are you after you have started eating, you know, how much of a serving size feels like it would be appropriate, you know, using all these sort of internal cues to guide your approach to food and then also integrating that with like, okay, you know, is this an event where people are going to be eating? Would I be super weird if I was like, I just am not hungry, I'm not going to eat? Or is this an event where there's going to be light snacks, but I'm likely to actually really want a meal, Mm -hmm. in which case am I setting myself up for like overeating on the snacks and feeling guilty or feeling weird. And what I really need is to like go to dinner beforehand. Right. You know, so kind of thinking about food in terms of self care. Yeah. And then there's so much deeper stuff that goes into that, right? Because to even get there, you have to like break down the diet mentality, you have to challenge the thoughts in your head that foods are good or bad and that you can't allow yourself to have access to things you might be hungry for, interested in. Right. Um, you know, like there's all these kind of things you have to do before you can really even get down to your intuition. Because unfortunately, in our society, like so much so much is, you know, kind of layered on top of our intuition that just buries it. Exactly. Exactly. And and the, the truth is, and this is what I try to tell people, that.
0: Intuitive eating without all of that crap on top of it is so simple and easy. Yes. And it, it really is very straightforward and there are no rules and it really is about mm-hmm. like some logic of like, are you going to get hungry? And also, what do you feel like eating and when do you feel like stopping and that there, it's not such a precious thing? Right. And of course, we both know I mean we both read intuitive eating. It was big for me too, though I then went back into six years of mm. either dieting or or very, very diet like intuitive eating right um, for a while before I had what I call my epiphany and the start of the fuck a diet for me. Um, But I think many other people do the same thing with the concept of intuitive eating, which is, Mm -hmm. okay, well, how can I plug this into my need and the responsibility, I put that in quotes, of keeping my weight down? Right, exactly. Which isn't really intuitive eating. It's a hunger fullness diet.
1: Exactly. Yeah. That's, I love that phrase. I think like Isabel Fox and Duke calls it that too. And it's, you know, sort of interpreted as another diet. And unfortunately there are more and more providers or coaches or whatever out there who are, are doing intuitive eating in that way where you'll see like in their marketing materials, like, you know, manage your weight, you know, know. get to your, you know, your body's natural weight by losing the weight you, you know, whatever. Like, It's like, it's not, that's not intuitive eating. Intuitive eating is, is accepting your body as it is and then fueling it as you need to fuel it, you know, regardless of what happens to your size. Yeah. And trusting it, a deep
0: trust Mm -hmm. in your appetite. Because I feel like uh, intuitive eating still is like, well, you know, uh, just try, just make sure you don't get too full. Right. It's like, well, what do you think like our ancestors did? Right. And what do you think, like, how do, how are we really wired to eat? Are we really wired to sit there and try to not get
1: too full? Like that right. just doesn't make any sense. And yeah. And I think too, like the fullness is, you know, that, that comes so much from the diet mentality, that emphasis placed on paying attention to your fullness. And oftentimes people don't really place any emphasis on decide you know, on on learning whether they're hungry. It's like they'll kind of override hunger cues for a long time or question hunger cues or, you know, be really sort of obsessive and weird about like honoring their hunger and yet they're super fixated on like, well, am Very I eighty percent full, 80% full yeah. or ninety percent? <laughs> and they're never you know, full. Like,
0: oh, I know. It's I, I really remember during my like my obsessive intuitive eating in quotes time. Mm-hmm. Um I I just thought that when I when I was hungry, I was wrong, and I don't yeah. mean that. I don't mean that I wasn't hungry. I just like that there was something wrong with me for being so hungry.
1: Mm-hmm. It was
0: just more proof to me that I had this food addiction, which is what I assumed my binging was. All yeah. my binging, I was like, this is just because I'm addicted to food. I just can't get it together. I'm hungry all the time. So there's something wrong with me. I shouldn't be this hungry when really all it came down to was like, I was hungry and I never, never let myself be full and,
1: and content with it. Right. Exactly. I think that's so common. Yeah, And that's, I, I completely went through that too. I thought I had a food addiction. I thought it was, you know, I went through like a long period of thinking it was gluten and I had a gluten intolerance or I had, uh, you know, some issue with carbs or whatever, because whenever I was around that stuff, I would end up overeating it. And like, actually, if you're starved and your body is low on fuel, that's what it's going to gravitate towards first, because that's quick energy that gets your blood sugar up. Yeah. So, you know, when you like are starving yourself or restricting yourself, and then you have access to like some delicious carbohydrate rich dessert, you know, it's completely normal and physiologically understandable that you're going to like be driven to overeat that or eat that to a feeling of fullness that maybe is uncomfortable for you.
0: Yeah. And I think teaching, I think teaching people that, that that is supposed to happen. Like there's Mm -hmm. nothing wrong with them. They are not broken. They are not food addicted in a way that you know it's like a lifelong thing right there's so much peace that can come from realizing that eating carbohydrates is actually your body
1: trying to save itself totally yeah i think that's such a Sort of breath of fresh air for a lot of people. Although I, I have certainly some eating disorder clients who hear that and they're like, "It's not fair, you know. Her body doesn't treat, you know, take care of her or try to stop her in the same way as my body tries to stop me from starving. You know, it's not fair that I don't get to do this or whatever." Right, like, right, right. Like envying the people who can basically starve themselves to death better. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, there's the kind of you know, hierarchy of eating disorders, unfortunately, where a lot of people wish they had anorexia, which is the most uncommon eating disorder. And I've heard
0: that so many times and and, and in a joking way, like in, in like rom-coms and like TV shows, you know, I wish I could be anorexic. Oh (laughs) my God. It's so painful. Oh, yeah, you do. That's a wonderful life. You'd be so happy and beautiful,
1: <laughs> right? <laughs> it's so messed up. Oh. And I think what people miss with that too is like, I mean, even people with other eating disorders, they think if I could just have anorexia, then I everything would be okay. And it's like it wouldn't be okay because when you have anorexia, you still have the eating disordered mindset that tells you you're never thin enough, you're never good enough, you're a terrible person, exactly. and of course your body is still trying to take care of you and make you eat. So then. You're are in this massive conflict all the time. Right. I mean, really, too, the distinction between eating disorders is not so cut and dried. It's like a lot of people have, you know, kind of go through different phases or different eating disorders from one moment to the next. So, sure. yeah, you know, for yeah. six months, you could be just restricting. And then the next six months, you could be just binging or binging and purging or whatever it is, you know. Yeah. And that people
0: cycle through. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. All right, let's move on to the next question, which is off of this one. How do you define and relate to intuition? Not intuitive eating, but just the idea of intuition.
1: Mm, That's a great question. I think that... I relate to it sort of in, I guess, somewhat the same way as I described intuitive eating, which is like we all have this core of intuition, this thing that takes care of us. And it's sort of a, an internal compass or guiding light. And so much shit gets layered on top of it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's so many um, rules and restrictions and, you know, people pushing you in a certain direction that kind of takes you away from your intuition or makes it harder to tune into it. So, you know, I know people who are super anxious, who, and I used to to completely be this way too, who like, you know, you tell them like, well, just check in with your gut or trust your gut. And they're like, I have no idea what my gut is telling me. Yeah. There's no way to know that, you know, is it telling me this? You know, and it's like, you can kind of get spinning in your head about what the real right thing to do is. But like, think, you know, to, to tap back into that, we're all capable of doing that. It's just a matter of like sort of stripping away the layers and doing practices that help us do that. So like for me and a lot of other people with anxiety, I find that the most helpful way is like mind body sort of attunement or Mm -hmm. meditation, you know, yoga, mindfulness, um, the kind of stuff that's just about like, you know, breathing, allowing what is to be there not trying to change it. Um, and sort of, you know, tuning into what's really underneath the surface and all the thoughts.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And for me, it's, it's been a lot of awareness about all the beliefs that I hold that are untrue and mm-hmm. all of the shoulds that I have internalized and think are really important. And, um, a lot of fears you anyway, know, it's all, it's all, I mean, that's what happens when you do a mind body, you have a mind body practice, those things mm-hmm. come to the surface and you're able to look at them for what they are. Um, also the idea of grounding and actually be like being present in the body.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: just from an energetic perspective, is really interesting because it, I think for eating disorders, there's this like fundamental fear of existing and like really digging in and and taking up space and being mm-hmm. seen. And um, people can be so uncomfortable in their bodies, and just that practice of forcing yourself to feel it, I think mm-hmm. can be really hard for people, but also really healing once you get used to, and uh, cause we're, cause we're running away from like facing
1: all of our emotions when we're trying to jump out of our bodies. Right. And, right. That's such a good point. There's and, so much emotion that's stored in the body and that like we grip and hold on to try to not feel it or not let it pass. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think that having to be present in the body, which again is a mind body practice, And there are so many ways to do it. You know, you mentioned a couple, yoga, meditation, um, forces you to like come up against all that trauma and all the old stuff, which is really hard for people. But then once you kind of get used to feeling emotions, it's like, it's just a part of your life and you're so much better equipped to feel them when they come along, I, I find, absolutely willing to to go there and process it in the moment as opposed to stuffing it down
1: Totally. Yeah. I think that's such a good point about it is that like, because when I first went into this, you know, journey of healing too, I was like terrified to feel my emotions and it felt like there's such a deep well of sadness and pain that I was just going to drown in it. Mm, You know, if I let myself even dip a toe in, I was just going to get sucked under. And that was partially true for a little while in the sense that like, I never really let myself, feel stuff and then suddenly when i started to it was like the floodgates did open and sure. i felt very overwhelmed by these feelings and i cried a lot and i was i was you know pretty down for a while but it was so much less terrible than I actually had expected it to be. And then kind of through the process of realizing that, that I could, you know, feel really overwhelmed with emotion, you know, for like half an hour and then be like happy and cheerful and doing something else, totally not thinking about it, you know, a few hours later. And I started to realize like, it just comes and goes. And if you can just kind of open to it and ride it a little bit, it's not as overwhelming. So, yeah, you're so right. That I think that's such a common fear too, that like, if I feel this stuff that I haven't been feeling,
0: like it's just never going to end. Like there's no bottom. It's just going to keep going. It's going to destroy me. We have this like maybe irrational fear. And I've actually heard that it's because when we're very, very young, um, our emotions actually do have the power to, to kind of like affect Mm -hmm. our health and can actually be dangerous so we we learn to you know we have a coping mechanism which serves us then but really doesn't serve us as adults and so it's a relearning I need to find where I where I figured where I heard that because I'd, I'd like to get the facts on that but it makes sense that we like develop coping mechanisms that then totally get in our
1: way Oh yeah, for sure. And also too, I think like to just sort of get by in society, there's a certain amount of like, excuse me, like compartmentalizing or stuffing that we're taught to do. And to the extent that like our parents model that for us too, it's sort of like, okay, well that's what it means to be an adult or to be a successful person is that I have to like put all these feelings away and just get shit done, Yeah, you know? And like, and, and it's true that, you know, our society isn't really set up for like, Subversion of emotions, you know, if you work in an office or something, like yeah. you can't just cry in a meeting. It's usually not, you know, respected, even though it, you know, it would be. I mean, I I wonder if there's any societies anywhere that are more open to that because it's. I do too, not patriarchy. Yeah,
0: it's, a, and it's a, it's a feminine, it's the fem, it, you know, if you're going to mm-hmm. look at like masculine and feminine principles and right. energies, which we all have and we all benefit from a balance of them. Our societies are, you know, built upon masculine principles, which, right. which can be detrimental on the whole because the feminine principles are much more in tune and intuitive and emotional and heart-based. And we need mm-hmm. both. Um, have you read the book Playing Big? Oh, No. It's so good. good. It's written by this woman named Tara Moore, and she Mm. talks about how, um, what we really need. So like women and men are equal now, you know, in (laughs) all like on paper, but that the structures that, that we're still operating under and all the businesses and, and the government, they're all still uh, very masculine dominant. Right. And that the way that things work is still from a, a purely masculine perspective and that it is our opportunity and challenge to step into roles of power so we can co-create the structures with mm. men. So, so the actual paradigm that we're living under is both masculine and feminine.
1: Oh that's so interesting. It's
0: so it's such a good book. I highly recommend it.
1: Yeah, it sounds amazing. It's it's a really good point. And sort of like I, it reminds me of something that I had kind of an issue with with that book Lean In, which was like, mm. you know, I feel like I read, read part of it and I just felt like it didn't apply to me at all because I'm not someone who's within a corporate structure. Like I work for myself and I do multiple things and you know, I ha- I can set up my business in whatever way I want to. So I've kind of tried to do it in a more heart-based way, although it's certainly always evolving and I find myself like descending into overwork a lot of yeah. the time. Um, but I felt like, you know, I feel like the the idea that we're supposed to like lean in to this, you know, existing structure is not very appealing because yeah. it doesn't, it doesn't honor women's unique gifts and femininity, you know? Exactly.
0: So the, oh my God. You'll love this book. You'll really yeah. love it.
1: It's very good. I want to reread it. Actually, I read it like a little over a
0: year ago and it was kind of life-changing because I didn't look at it that way before.
1: Yeah. No, I know. It's like you can feel sort of outside or wrong or something yes. like you don't fit in, in the world of the workplace. But really, it's just that it's not designed for women or yeah. you know and people it's not with strong I- emotions. And it's not generally. ideal
0: for... And then it comes back around to it's not ideal for men either. They have emotions no. too. They, yes. like, they need to honor the, the feminine within them. And they, of course... Are often masculine dominant, but that doesn't mean that the feminine can be ignored if you want to be healthy and have a happy, sustainable life. Same with us. Like we mm-hmm. need to get some stuff done. <laughs> but it just right, we can't is a allowed... emoting. Exactly. All but it's allowed to be in a natural rhythmic way that works for yeah. us. And I think the more I the more I lean into that and not a masculine workplace, the right. better my life gets, honestly, because I let myself off the hook for the things that I naturally <laughs> want to do that I would maybe have made myself feel bad for in the past.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: it's way better. It's way, way better. So
1: much better. I know. I totally identify with that. I think finding your niche and find, you know, I think it's like so easy to think there's something wrong with you when you see one way modeled all the time, Yeah, but you know, it can't be that there's something so dreadfully wrong that nobody else has ever felt before. You know, we've all experienced feelings that, that felt out of place or whatever. And I think the solution is like creating a better home for them.
0: Yeah. And the fact that we have the power to, to create, to create Mm -hmm. not only, you know, blog posts and and podcasts but to create the world that we live in and to contribute to the way that things work. Yes. Gives us a lot of power actually.
1: Totally agree.
0: This is exciting. All right, Thank my you. next question for you is what is the biggest reason you want people to know that they shouldn't diet physically?
1: If we're just going to talk mm. physical ramifications. That's a great question. Um I, so I think the biggest one is like if people are, at all still in the diet mentality of like, I need to lose weight. I won't be okay until I lose weight. Diets are actually the best way to gain weight mm-hmm. <laughs> in the long term. Diets will not make you lose weight. They'll make you gain weight. So from that purely sort of vanity perspective, you know, if someone's coming in the door with that, I will often tell them like, listen, I know this is where you're at right now. I know you think you need to lose weight, but physically you are only going to make yourself gain weight in the long run. So mm-hmm. like, let's at least... You know, get so you to hear like, me out. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like, let's let's go through that first, because um, every time you go on a diet, you're suppressing your body's metabolism. You're telling it it's in a famine, mm-hmm. that it's starving, you know, and that that food is not going to be available anytime soon. So it gets wise. Like the fir- usually the first time people go on a diet, they'll lose some weight fairly quickly and, you know, maybe maintain it for a little while and then it comes back on. And then they try to go on another diet and they're like, if only it could be like the last time I was, it was so easy. I just did this, this, and this. I'll just do that again. And this time I'll maintain it. But then inevitably like the second, third, fourth, whatever time, it just gets harder and harder and harder to lose weight. And that's because your body is saying is, is wise to your you know, your efforts to starve it. And it thinks famine is coming, therefore it has to Retain extra fat stores and um, you know energy to prevent against the next famine. So it's much much harder to lose weight each time you try to do it, and that's why people kind of bounce around from diet to diet because they're like, "Well, this thing worked for me the first time, but now it's not working, so I have to find something else." Maybe right. it's because exactly. this one had too many carbs or too <laughs> little protein or too much fiber, or, you know, whatever. Like bullshit. Once, bullshit. once you learn that famine concept.
0: Isn't it amazing how obvious it is? Yes. Like it's- I can't believe I, I didn't understand that before. It's so obvious that that's what's mm-hmm. happening and that our bodies have kept us alive that way for thousands of years.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We wouldn't be here if it weren't for that mechanism.
0: I know, I know. (laughs) It makes so much sense that it fixates you on food. It suppresses Mm -hmm. your metabolism. It makes things taste better. It makes you not be able to stop thinking about food. It breaks on your body slowly, trying to keep you alive, but still there are sacrifices. And that once you come around food, or your resolve, you know, if you're putting yourself on this famine and your resolve, Mm -hmm. you know. Dies, (laughs) It dies, <laughs> you and you and you binge. That is like as if you were coming in contact with food, and you would eat as much as you possibly could, and you wouldn't yeah. be able to stop yourself, and you would put on weight. Like you would put on right. weight as quickly as you possibly could. And, and then I, I tell people to imagine, like, imagine this is a famine and you and you binge and it's this awesome thing. And then you didn't fight it at all. You were like, yes, mm-hmm. there's so much food. I'm going to eat all of this food for as long as I can, you know, and your body would be like, yes, this is awesome. And you would rest a lot and you would like, it would just make so much sense why you were that mm-hmm. hungry because people get so freaked out that they're so hungry yes. after a diet um, or an eating disorder. And And that it really does make so much sense if you can look at it from that perspective. And if you can trust that, which you totally would, if it was a famine, you would trust like months of, of lots of eating, you know, Mm
1: -hmm. and then
0: you would trust also that like, eventually my body's going to understand that there's enough food. And
1: eventually there's like, I'm, it's going to calm down and it does and it will. Yes exactly i know it's it's amazing how perfectly we're wired in that sense you know there's it really has helped the human race survive for millennia so you know don't fight it like let yourself but i think the problem is that you know our society tells people that they should lose weight and that's why they embarked on the diet in the first place is because they bought into this idea that their existing body size was wrong and so you know that's the aspect of it that's like a social justice kind of public health education uh, thing that we need to keep working on and you know part of why I do the health at every size work is because like If, you know, as long as you hold this belief that your existing body size is not okay and that, like, maybe there's something around the corner, you know, maybe there's that one magic diet that can work, you're gonna stay locked in that cycle, you know? And even when people, people know about the famine thing and they start to embrace that and sort of accept that. There's still a lot of body image and body acceptance work that has to be done for them to truly settle into it and truly feel like they can honor their hunger and their fullness and that they won't gain weight forever. Totally, totally. Because that really, I mean, that's the start of
0: it all. So it becomes... You know, even once you, you, you can decide to trust your body, but then all of that fear is still present and all these beliefs about weight and health and weight and worth. And yeah, yeah that really does become, I, th-
1: I think, the more difficult part of the puzzle totally i think it's uh, that's why it's sort of the last piece to recover in eating disorders why it's like you know some people will go on intuitive eating you know for all the right reasons and be like i'm done with diets and then fall back like oprah you know very publicly oh recently God, i see that I as a, a sort of very um public example of somebody who like found intuitive eating was really okay with it for a while. And then something switched in her, you know, relationship to her body or, or just, yeah. she was like, I'm not okay like this. I'm not okay in my, my natural body state and, That's you know, so, kind of got stuck back in. It's so painful for everyone, um, tra-
0: trying to recover I know, and knowing and, and really like getting on board with health at every size and and doing this work and facing all their fears and then seeing Oprah doing the thing that that in the back of their heads, they're like, wait, am I really, wait, am I wrong? Am I supposed to be doing that? It's so painful for me to see that happen. And it's really, it's frustrating. And I feel for Oprah, of course, but like, it's, it's, it's it's a lot it's
1: frustrating I know it is it's really a lot and I I see it as like you know it's I definitely feel for her and I also feel like if she with all her billions of dollars or whatever she has you know she's one of the richest women in the country like if not the world right so if she can't if she hasn't mastered this quote-unquote if she hasn't figured out away over decades now to sustainably lose weight. And she's done Weight Watchers before PS. Like she, you know, Weight Watchers is not a new thing for her. Weight Watchers is not going to be the end of it. I guarantee. Wait, well, Weight Watchers has
0: changed. Apparently it's not a diet anymore. Didn't you know that it's
1: just a lifestyle? It's a lifestyle. (laughs) Oh my God. I can't. Uh, You're still counting stuff. You're still like limiting amounts that you can have rather than trusting your body. It's ugh. Yeah, no, it's it's a hard world to recover in. Like I I'm amazed. I think it's a truly a miracle that and as many people are able to fully recover as as are because you kind you know. of need to like create your own little bubble to be perfectly mm-hmm. honest
0: though. Like my my Facebook feed and my Twitter feed and my Instagram feed like I and I recommend this to everybody else like fo- only follow people that are going to pull you forward. Yes.
1: Create your
0: world to be
1: supportive of where you want to go. Yeah, I think that's such great advice. And that's what I do too, because like you know, it's, it's easy to get, or if I, if I am surrounded by that, because inevitably sometimes we're at like a family function where diet talk breaks out or whatever, you know, start just kind of question it, you know, become a critical thinker about the stuff that you hear. Don't just buy into it. Like, and if you can have a community around you that supports that and that, you know, constantly gives you ways of thinking critically or ways of sort of unpacking things that you hear, it becomes a lot easier. Yes. That's really good advice.
0: All right. I'm going to ask you, um, some light, a lightning round, but they're actually kind of really intense questions. So, (laughs) so just do the best you can. Okay, Okay. Cool. My first question is what would you never do again if you found out you only had a year to live? Oh, wow.
1: Um, I would never, I would never overwork again. Mm hmm. That's a good answer. That's a really good answer. I would like really let myself off the hook with that. Yeah. Because who cares about like saving money if you only have a year to live? Exactly. Exactly. I asked myself this.
0: I started asking myself this question a year and a half ago. And my answers, I mean, they weren't like totally unknown to me, but really, really figuring out like, what would I do? What would I start doing? What would I stop doing? I've like slowly been sort of inching in that direction. And my life is so super different than it was just by mm-hmm. asking myself this question. That's
1: awesome. It's kind of crazy. It's a great question. I'm going to have to start reflecting on that more. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard because of course you
0: go, I ask people on there like, well, I would, I would, uh, cause I, I normally I say like, what would you do? I don't say like, what would you never do again? Mm-hmm. I just ask mm-hmm. it really generally. And people are like, well, I would, um, I would cry for a while and like, no, I get it. No, that's not the, I I get it. I get it. But like, that's not the point of the question. The question is, what do you care about and what do you not care about and how can you get closer to your ideal life essentially? Yeah.
1: And what makes you feel alive? That's so amazing there's a a type of therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but no, it's it's used a lot with eating disorders and you know just generally is very helpful, I think, to people with any sort of obsessional or anxious um issue and it's It's all about that is like clarifying your values and helping you do things that move yourself towards those values and sort of accepting what is in your life, but realizing that you know, if you want to get to where you want to be, maybe there's some things that have to change. That's so awesome. one of the, yeah, I went to a workshop on it uh, a couple of years ago. And one of the, one of the questions they asked was like, what do you want people to say at your funeral? Yeah. You know, like everybody around the room was crying. All these therapists were like, you know, sharing all this really, yeah, really profound it's a stuff. really, it's like,
0: really good question. I should answer that yeah. one myself actually.
1: Oh, Ooh, I'm yeah. going to cry.
0: I'm going to cry. When I do it. It's a really good one. I'm totally going to think while, about yeah. that later.
1: Yeah. Really puts things in perspective. It
0: does. And I think it, I think that that's helpful for us because again, stuck in a rat race, we, we lose perspective so quickly, Mm -hmm. so quickly. I can have this like spiritual moment with myself. And then five minutes later, I'm like, I totally forget (laughs) that I ever had it completely. Yeah. All right. Here's the next question. Do you like Mm -hmm. grocery shopping? Yes. Yes, I do. Oh, I'm so um, jealous. Even in New York, how do you how do you like make it work for you?
1: Yeah, oh. I mean in New York it's trickier for sure. Um, I try to go like off peak hours mm-hmm. and since I work from home 3 days a week, I can definitely find the time although again, see my previous comment about overwork, sometimes I don't, but um, <laughs> but yeah, I I will either go at off peak hours or there's like a few grocery stores in the city that have parking lots and I have a car so mm-hmm. I'll like go and park in the parking lot and like get a bunch of stuff and then not have to shop for a while that's so good that I think that would make a huge difference for me honestly having a car oh it's so helpful I yeah. really love it I don't love the alternate side parking but everything else is right is great.
0: right where do you live in Brooklyn again
1: I live in Ditmas Park. Okay. So there there's decent street parking around here, but it's still kind of a pain. Yeah. No, that's good. I
0: I resist grocery shopping because it's hard in the city. Mm-hmm. And I also like I used to be somebody who like thought that I loved food so much more than I actually, I mean, I love food. Clearly I like Mm -hmm. it. It tastes good. It's, it's wonderful. I eat every, every day a lot, but like, I thought that like, I used to watch Nigella who I still love. I really appreciate her enthusiasm for food, Mm -hmm. but I believed that I, that food was my passion, my, like one Mm -hmm. of my number one passions. And I just learned since healing that I, kind of don't care that much I I do care about quality I like good restaurants I love good food but if I could just like have it like just have it delivered to me like good quality food and just eat it and then do other
1: things I think I would that's a great point. I I completely understand that because I also used to think food was my passion and wrote about food for years and you know still write about food uh, to some extent and like you know thought that it was such a be-all end all, but when I was properly nourished, became much less of a focus. Yes, <laughs> yes. I care so much less. <laughs> I know. And I'm so much less likely to like seek out, you know, interesting different things too. I feel like I was so motivated to like do these you know, kind of make these big expenditures of time in, in pursuit of food. And now it's like, I have my couple grocery stores I go to, you know, I like to like see what's new or buy different interesting things, but really it's not like how it used to be where I was like, Ooh, this and that, yeah, this, this specialty store for this. Exactly. And like, look at the beautiful tin that
0: it's in and blah,
1: blah,
0: blah. I can't. Yeah. It was a lot. It was a lot. It's amazing. It just goes to show you how like
1: kind of biological it was affecting mm-hmm. our psychology. And I think we, I don't know if it was on the live podcast that you did of mine that we spoke about this or I've, I've talked about it with other people, but the, um, the Minnesota starvation experiment mm-hmm. where they, oh my God. you know, subjected these guys to like a semi-starvation diet. And then suddenly this whole food culture erupted among yes. these guys who never cared about food before. Yeah. And then they became they all, chefs. Yeah, some of them became chefs. Some of them became like farmers or worked in the food industry in some other way. It's amazing. Um, It like changed the course of their life and they ostensibly hadn't cared about food at all before. So So it doesn't
0: surprise me at all.
1: Yeah, no, I know. And I see it a lot too with like chefs or... you know, people who like, like food bloggers and food writers and stuff too. I think a lot of that is motivated by restriction or, you know, a complicated relationship to food.
0: So interesting. Mm -hmm. So interesting. I'd like to meet someone who's truly passionate about food, like very, very passionate about talking about food and cooking food that has never had, I I know they exist. Mm -hmm. There are many of them, I'm sure. Um, but even Nigella, like her mother had an eating disorder and that's, she talks about that, that is part of her inspiration for really pushing in the other direction.
1: Oh, that's so interesting. Really, really, yeah. I, I was thinking because I, I know one guy who came on the podcast who seemingly had a pretty unconflicted relationship to food, and he's a, he's a food writer. His name is Matthew Amsterburton. Um, he's like a great food writer and does a lot of cool stuff. But he said on the podcast that his mom um, didn't have an, well. She, he didn't say if she had an eating disorder or not, but she was like a caterer, maybe a cookbook editor, something in the in the food industry. So clearly, there was like you know, someone kind of set the precedent there.
0: Right. I mean, maybe it's truly, I mean, passions can be genetic. I mean, like people have to be passionate about food, genuinely passionate about food in a way that I'm not, because I would rather think about almost anything else these days.
1: Right. I mean,
0: as long as I know that there is, that I have access to food, I don't need to think about food.
1: Yeah. I mean, I know, totally. I don't spend really any night time between and day. meals. I mean, and night food.
0: and day. From mm-hmm. how I was, I have done a horrible oh. job making these lightning rounds. Okay, let me oh. continue. <laughs> okay, here's, I just feel
1: like that. It's very the, hard to do.
0: Here's the next question. Okay, this is also a long answer and a hard question. But if you mm-hmm. could have five other lives besides your own, you get to keep your life that you have, but you also can have five separate lives where you can be anything and do anything. What would they be?
1: Oh my God. That's a crazy question. I love it. Um, uh, uh, maybe be an astronaut because awesome. I love space. Um, maybe, and I don't love physics though, but whatever, this is a, a fantasy. <laughs> exactly. Um, like live on a beach and do nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, what else? Uh, I love like graphic design and stuff, but I'm really not good at it. So maybe like really good at graphic design and uh-huh. be a designer cool. um, what else what else have I always loved um this is sort of related to what I do now but be a therapist like a, a therapist therapist not a yeah. nutrition therapist um because I think psychology is so interesting and would love to like help people with other issues and you know the underlying stuff around food um or not not food but just the underlying stuff um and then what else? Be like, uh, oh, you know, I when I was a kid, I always wanted to be a fiction writer, and mm. that would be. I mean, I think that sort of was responsible for my going into journalism because I I like channeled it in sort of a more adult direction. But I think yeah. if I could, you know, go back to that time when I had the passion about about writing stories and pursue that. It's it,
0: amazing, that be- you know. Um, I actually interviewed Maddie Moon today as well. Nice. And um, that was one of her lives as well. And I'm curious, do you ever let yourself, do you ever let yourself write fiction these days?
1: No, not really. Not really. I'm writing some like personal essay memoir stuff now, but Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's almost, I almost have a block against it, I think. Interesting. Like when I was in college, I know, I know. It's really crazy, actually. When I was in college, I started to pursue, I mean, sort of pursued journalism in high school, but really seriously started to pursue it in college. And then on the side as my sort of creative writing outlet, I did poetry Mm. and, you know, poetry kind of, I don't know, I guess it felt like a more, um, it was, it's definitely more esoteric. The community around poetry is so sure. much more obscure, you know, but like, I think it felt more sort of intellectually, um, like what I should do, you know, the, the people I knew who did poetry were like very serious, smart people. So I was like, poetry is the thing. Right. right. Uh, so that's, that's kind of where I channeled that energy. And I never write poetry anymore because I think poetry was also sort of an effort to like adultify sure. my interest and yeah, why um, the hell do I not write fiction? Now I also feel like writing feels like work because that's what I get paid for. Sure. Yeah.
0: Like, that makes sense day, to me. A lot of days. So yeah, it's like, yeah, that's that. Uh, Cause what I was going to say is you should probably like <laughs> for fun, obviously, like don't put any pressure right. on it. But I mean, if it's something that you loved,
1: you might still love it. It might be like a really awesome I know. outlet. And that's what like I you know when I started doing improv comedy like I had done theater in junior high and high school and a little bit in college so like it kind of felt like coming home to right. start doing improv again and you know, these a great outlet for it actually such, yeah I think it's it's a you know kind of a different way a different medium for the same thing of like making up stories yeah you know? yeah
0: yeah that's true that's uh, true
1: so that's a fun thing but yeah no I know I think down the line certainly if I like have some free time and, and I'm not writing as much, it would be right. nice to, to get back into fiction.
0: It is hard to start. Um, I find this sometimes like when I'm in a show singing, cause singing, like I just love, and I, I love to do it and I do it all the time and it's so joyful for me, but then being in a show where you're singing all day long and rehearsals, it's like the last thing you want to do right. is sing on your off time. Sort of. It depends. It depends. But Mm -hmm. it is a hard thing to start
1: um, doing what you love for work because you can get burnt out. You really can. I know. Yeah. Yeah. It's been a real challenge because I definitely feel like I kind of expend all my creative energy, you know, with in the writing medium with my paid work. And then I'm just like, Oh, I have nothing more. So improv has been a nice thing because I don't really have any aspirations to be a professional comedian or actor or whatever, you know, which is kind of what a lot of people use improv for, but I just am doing it for the fun.
0: Yeah. That's, that's a, that's a gift, honestly, because I've been, I struggle, have struggled so much with, with what capacity I'm Mm -hmm. actually willing to, to act um, mm-hmm. because I've been a professional actor, I've been hired and I continue to, um, I'm actually going to move to Philadelphia in June. Mm. Um, it's kind of like I decided a couple months ago and it feels so right. And I have so many friends there and I have an artistic That's community awesome. there that I never really settled into in New York. Like I did improv and mm. I did, um, uh, lots of other things, but it never felt like, It never felt like a community to me in the Mm. way that Philadelphia does. And I'm kind of letting myself off the hook and saying like, I don't have to act anymore though. I want to, I, I want to, if the opportunity comes my way and, and it will in Philadelphia because I do Mm -hmm. have contacts and I, I'll actually get paid to do it. And, and, but it'll be this like side thing as opposed to this subconscious pressure that I put on myself for the past 10 years in New York being like, you should be auditioning Mm -hmm. every day for, like I'm done actually. Like it doesn't really bring me Uh, joy, that pressure in New York I know Um, it is a lot of pressure. It's a lot. And and I, for years I've been like, I just need to learn to love it. I need to learn to love Mm -hmm. auditioning and just like get rid of all my fears about it and just be brazen (laughs) and just believe in myself. And I kind of did like, I kind of did push through all those things because I believed that on the other side was this like happy, like joyful life of me auditioning and not, not hating it anymore. And like just Mm -hmm. feeling so free and it just never happened. I just don't
1: like it. Right. I can't imagine liking it either. And my boyfriend's an actor. So he, he does that. He does the whole right. grind of like going right. auditions every day. And like, some
0: people and can really do it. Like some people are like, yeah, they can. And they're Ugh. meant to. And I, I've been so judgmental of myself for the possibility that I'm not meant to do the grind. I've been like, mm. so bummed about that. Cause I thought it meant that I wouldn't act or sing. Um, right. But so fine. Allowing an outlet, And not feeling, and, you know, without the pressure, I think is such a gift to me. And it's also so cool that you can enjoy what you do, um, the improv without, without putting pressure on it.
1: I know it's, i I was really lucky, I think, to have that because if I had stumbled into it, you know, five or 10 years ago when I was still certainly 10 years ago when I was still doing a little bit of theater and stuff here and there and considered like, maybe I could, you know, at some point go in that direction, you know, end of college, I was like, maybe I could still be an actor. So if I had found it then it might've become this pressured situation, you know, and actually I, I was thinking like, going back to the what we were saying about the masculine and feminine energy of, like, workplaces, I feel like the audition grind is really a masculine Ugh. sort of thing. Yes. You know, like... Oh, my God. And I think that's part of why my boyfriend thrives in it is because mm-hmm. he does have that sort of masculine-dominant personality where he can just, like get it done, get it done. Like yeah. doesn't, doesn't get too caught up in like, self judgment or questioning or whatever. He's just like, well, whatever I left in the room, you know? Right. And to me, that's like, it's so hard not to be like, what was that person thinking? How do I feel? How did I make them feel like, uh, you know, am I wanted? Am I good enough? Yeah, know, it's these- depleting.
0: It's oh, really, yeah. really depleting to me. I'm exhausted after them. Exhausted. Mm. And not to mention that it like takes a whole day anyway, but it's oh, yeah. just like, especially if you're going to like an open and more open call as opposed to an appointment, mm-hmm. but even appointments, it's like, yeah, get just getting ready and like right. being prepared and getting there and waiting and go, like it, it's and like really, changes of clothes yes. if you have to go to multiple
1: ones it's or whatever. so like,
0: taxing. And I, I know. really like, I, I am getting to a place and I hope to continue to really sink into this place of really, Um, honoring the people who, who are willing to do that. And instead of like Mm -hmm. being bummed and like jealous and sad that I Mm -hmm. that I'm not willing realizing like that it's all good. And like, I love what I'm doing now too. And that that's a gift as well. Not everybody can say they love what they do. So, you know, and the fact that I know that I am going to keep performing, just not, It just isn't going to be in this like grand, big pressure, pressure filled and commercial capacity that I thought that I had to do before,
1: which feels so good.
0: It feels so good.
1: Yeah. And I think too, like there's so many increasing outlets for that type of performance, you know, like you have a gift to perform in whatever capacity you choose to use it and you can use it in a way that feels authentic to you. You don't have to use it in this pre-existing structure, you know, exactly. like I'm thinking about like, um, broad city with, uh, Abby and Alana, who like auditioned a million times to get on a Herald team at, and never the, did. at um, UCB and never did. And it was, and they were just sort of like, well, screw it. Like we can do our own thing yes. and just made and a web series. You exactly. Know? That's I such know. An, an
0: amazing example of the, of creating your own paradigm, being like, I'm trying to fit totally. into this existing structure. I should just be making my own. That's what UCB was to begin with. It was It was a a sketch team that were like, they were like, we should teach improv. We use improv to make our sketches. And like they did their own thing. And now it's, you know, I think that's just the way that societies work. Like Mm -hmm. that's the way humans tend to go. And then it's all about unlearning and realizing that you can be innovative yourself.
1: You don't have to do what has been laid out before you. Exactly. Yeah. And then, and then it's funny though, because when you reach a certain level of success or notoriety, like you, you end up being a structure yourself. You I know, know. Like what you've created becomes that like hierarchical structure for someone else. That's and then it's like so up true. to them to true. break down and rebuild and so
0: interesting, very, very, very interesting.
1: I know. Yeah, it's a cycle.
0: I think that Amy Poehler is a producer on Broad City, though. Ironically, so she is. Yes, that's that's cool. true. So yeah,
1: they did. She end gets up it. She gets having it. that hierarchy kind of helped you know, them work to their advantage. Mm-hmm. All right, my
0: last question for you is: if we were going to sing a duet, what would it be? Oh. <laughs>
1: I love that. Um whenever I think of a duet, the thing that first pops to mind is so silly and cheesy, but it's like um I don't even remember what movie it was. Maybe it's called Duets with Gwyneth Paltrow and Hughie Lewis where oh, they're yeah. like uh it's like cruising. Yes, yes yes, <laughs> yes,
0: yes. Oh my god, I remember so hearing crazy. that song and being so confused that Gwyneth Paltrow was singing
1: and she's yeah. really good. She's actually pretty good. I know. It's funny. Well, yeah, I don't
0: know why that's that's what pops to mind with duets. Yeah, that actually makes sense that like an iconic duet would pop into your mind. the words to that song? I don't know it either. (laughs) We would have to like make another time and like Skype for 10 minutes. And oh, yeah, we can look at the words and just do it. And it's just
1: oh, that sounds fun. so fun. Oh, fun. I love it. I love karaoke. Okay. Awesome. Like, Yay. The-
0: so we'll do it. Fun. We'll like, I'll email you and we'll set up a time. For, That's amazing. Like, next I week love it. Next week. Yay. Awesome. So I want to give you an opportunity to just talk again about where people can find you and how they can work with you if they want to work with you. Um,
1: so people know how they can connect with you. Totally. Thank you. Um, so people can find me on my website. That's probably the best way. It's Chris stharrison.com. Uh, so there you'll find my nutrition therapy practice and info about it. And I have like a new client section that people can fill out if they want to work with me. Um, it's like a little questionnaire to, to get in touch. Um, and the podcast is also there. So check out the podcast, subscribe on iTunes. Um, and you can also see my journalism work and consulting work and other stuff that I do. It's all there. So it's a really pretty website. Thank you. Yeah, I designed it myself, and I'm always I'm always tweaking with it. So I do the same thing. I mean, I
0: eventually I'm going to have to hire someone, I think. But like, I Mm -hmm. change my website like every month or two (laughs) because I always (laughs) want to update the information, and I'm always like unhappy with. The design, I like it for like a couple weeks, and I'm like, "What the hell?
1: What was I thinking? <laughs> How horrible is that?" And then I yeah, think it. oh, I I went through that for so long, and then I finally found Squarespace, and mm. I, I love there, but the, but still, you know, I keep tweaking it because it's like, well, this should go over here, yeah. or now I want to promote, yes, yeah, exactly, or, you know, so it's like exactly always a work in progress.
2: Hey Squarespace, you want to support the Fuck It Tight Radio? <laughs>
0: Okay, back to the combo.
1: All right, I will talk to you soon. Yay, talk to you soon. Thanks so much, Caroline. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. All right,
0: so what happened is we did try to record Cruisin'. I learned the harmonies and the ukulele and everything, and I tried to record it with her, but it turns out, now that this has happened two times to me, it turns out that trying to do a duet with someone over Skype doesn't actually work. And it's because there is a little bit of lag time that you don't really notice in a conversation, but you definitely notice when you're trying to sing at the same time and it doesn't work. And it's really disappointing. And I don't know the answer, but well, it was really bad. Okay. It was really, really, really bad. And like, we were horrible, I mean, we were trying so hard, and we're not that bad, but we were really bad. So what I'm going to do is I'm probably going to release, like, the tiniest clip of that in Patreon for my patrons, um, just so they get the real inside scoop of how truly terrible we were, Um but yeah, okay, so we tried, and I'm gonna have to figure out a better way to be able to collaborate in a fun way with my with my people who I have on the podcast. Okay. So again, subscribe on YouTube. No, 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 not YouTube. Subscribe on iTunes, rate and review, please. Support on Patreon, Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Caroline Duner. If you support, that's where you can see the weird stuff, like the horrible recording that we tried to make really poorly. Um, what else do I want to tell you? Um, yes, I have that live workshop coming up. You can find out information at thefuckadiet.com slash webinar. And I think there's something else I wanted to say, but I don't remember what it is. Oh, yeah. Christy and Katie Dale about are hosting a live podcast taping in new york city next week on april 5th and i'm going to be singing my songs my songs sort of about food sort of um and so if you're in new york check out i'll put a link to the best way to buy tickets for that i don't think they're very expensive um but it'll be really fun if you can make it live and if not of course you'll be able to listen back And without further ado, I'm going to sing a song, I think, that I wrote. Actually, you know what? Screw it, man. I'm going to sing my cheese song.
2: Do you know how long it's been? But I didn't understand what lactose intolerance was supposed to be.
0: About my childhood with a misdiagnosed uh, lactose intolerance and all of the turmoil that caused. Okay. <clears throat> all right. I'm going to go take my feet out of this Epsom salt soak. I'll see you guys later. Bye.